Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. And today, as you can see, is episode 190. And it's a good one today. Ryan Bergenti of Front Row Motorsports. I unfortunately forgot to ask him how he officially pronounces his name, because a lot of people are like, Ryan Burgundy. Ryan Burgenty, but I'm 99.999% sure it's Ryan Burgenty. Uh, and he is our guest this week, crew chief for the 38 Ford for Front Row Motorsports in the NASCAR Cup Series. Great to chat with him coming off of the first and only off weekend of the entire calendar year. So that means we have nothing to recap, but we do have a race to preview as NBC takes over TV coverage from Fox. Of course, Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. We'll have you covered soup to nuts every single race, every single weekend right there for you. But before we do any of that, we got to throw it to our way back segment for the week. Papa Siegel has us covered as he does every single week. Who are we paying homage to with the number 90, Dad? Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 190. Last time around, we looked back on legendary car owner Junie Donlevy. Today... We focus our way back lens on the driver who had the most starts in car number 90. Dick Brooks had 358 cup starts over a 17-year career dating back to the Grand National days. 175 of those starts came in the 90 car, most of those being for Junie Donlevy, as you might expect. Despite what looks like a lackluster record, Brooks was one of the most popular and respected drivers in the garage. He always seemed to find himself in second-tier underfunded equipment, whether it was for Don Levy or his own team or someone else. To his credit and the appreciation of his car owners and competitors, Brooks was the kind of professional wheelman who usually ran his own race, got the most out of his car without overdriving it, and generally stayed out of the way of his faster competitors. They were different times, my friends, and Brooks was that rare breed of driver who could understand he had a 15th, 20th place car and take pride and enjoyment from running in the top 20 on a given day and bringing the car home in one piece. One day, however, the stars aligned for Brooks, and he scored one of those most improbable wins you could imagine similar to the time Jody Ridley won at Dover for Don Levy, as we recalled during our last look at number 90. For Brooks, that charm day came in 1973 at Talladega. He started out that year without a full-time ride, but guided a Cotton Owens Dodge to a third-place finish at Daytona. He drove Don Levy's number 90 for eight races, as Junie struggled to find enough parts and money to field his team. Brooks was without a ride for the Talladega 500 that year, but NASCAR ruled Jimmy Crawford didn't have enough experience on the big super speedway, so Brooks took over his ride. 
The racing gods smiled down on Brooks that day, and he won his only race over Buddy Baker by seven seconds. Brooks did some color commentary on race broadcasts after he hung his boots up and later lent his name to various car dealerships in the Carolinas, mostly Dodge dealers, as he was known as a loyal Mopar driver. Brooks survived a small plane crash in 2004, but eventually died from complications of that in 2006 at the age of 63. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. And uh, since I threw it blindly to you last week and kind of this week, um, I did not get a chance to respond to your grandchildren comment. All I will say is good things come to those who wait. So one day, one day, and I'll leave it at that. Let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old fashioned (laughs) and throw it straight over to my interview with Ryan Bergenti of Front Row Motorsports. Again, really cool guy. You know, he gives me kind of the same vibes as Ryan Priest. Northeast guy, racer's racer, hard-nosed, no BS, and that's just how he kind of lives his everyday life. He has been around the block a time or two, worked for Front Row Motorsports, obviously, right now, Furniture Row Racing. He's worked for Chip Ganassi Racing. Going back all the way to the mid to late 2000s when he got started in motorsports as it pertains to NASCAR. Real interesting guy. And they obviously have had great results yielded by the new partnership between him and obviously Todd Gillen for the bulk of the races this year with Zane Smith being in the car for a little bit. Chatted about that, the relationship and dynamic, having that two-driver merry-go-round of sorts in the driver's seat. He did not sugarcoat it, said that it was pretty tough. I'll let him tell you himself and so much more. Let's go ahead and chat with Ryan Bergenti right here on Victory Lane. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, crew chief of the 38 Front Row Motorsports Ford in the NASCAR Cup Series for both Todd Gillen and Zane Smith. It is Lion Mode Man himself. We'll get there. Don't you worry, Ryan Bergenti. Yeah. How are we doing today, my friend? Yeah, good, man. Just a Monday after an off weekend. So uh, getting back in the swing of things and headed to Nashville this weekend. Looking forward to it. We were just talking. Your off weekend was spent in the Outer Banks, some beach vibes. That's good. But at the same time, I will have to say, when you're taking care of your own kids and some other your, some other kids are there with another family, it's not necessarily the most relaxing, but I hope that you were able to get some R&R. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's uh, once you have kids, the, the relaxing kind of is a tough thing to mm-hmm. come by. But it's uh, it's enjoyable to spend some mornings with the family and, you know, waking up, having coffee and breakfast with the kids and you know, my uh, my oldest daughter, she's four and a half, and she was wanting to be in the pool at about 7 a.m. every day. So uh, I'm a pool guy myself. So mm-hmm. we uh, we hit the pool in the mornings and the beach in the afternoon. And it was a good weekend for sure. So I saw you tweeted 3,358 miles in 18 hours. Is that Charlotte to Sonoma back to the Outer Banks? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was Sonoma. So all the way up the coast and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in Corolla, so that's all the way to the other coast. And it was, I think we got home at, you know, we landed about two thirty, three o'clock and I live about an hour away. So got to sleep about 4 a.m. And about 6 a.m., my two little girls were, Daddy, it's time to go to the beach. It's time to go to the beach. So uh, we made the best of it. We made the trip out and it was enjoyable. And it was uh, it was a good weekend for the family, for sure. 
So you are one of those guys that did not catch up on sleep this weekend. Okay. No, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be a record. 3,300 miles and change in less than 24 hours. I mean, that is, that's impressive. Yeah. And just, it's a part of it, right? You gotta, it's important to be there for the team, but it's just as important to be there for the family when they're ready to go. So like I said, it was uh, early morning for me last Monday, but uh, once we got out there and got settled and um, grab a cocktail and sit by the pool, it was all good. That's right. Spoken like a true vet, which leads me <laughs> into my next point. You're kind of like a vet, but it's your first full-time Cup Series crew chiefing gig here in 2023. I'm curious, you know, being in the sport and with race-winning teams and organizations for the last several years, you're no stranger to knowing what it takes to compete at the top level, but now you are the guy. You are the leader, the shot caller every single weekend. Now 16 races into the year, how do you think the transition's been? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me personally, the transition has uh, – it's been kind of smooth, to be honest with you. Um, again, it goes back to being in the industry for uh, for quite some time, you know, back to 05, 06 era. Um, so it's it's all uh, – it's just the same people, right? You're, you're around the same people, just a different role and – you know, it just you just pre- prepare yourself for opportunity. And when it comes up, you just you tackle it. So um, I think the transition's been pretty smooth. Uh, I feel that everybody's kind of responded well to um, kind of my new role within you know front row here and everything. And um, you know, we've we've had some results this year. Not not exactly where I want to be just yet, but um, you know, we're all pushing really hard to get better. And um, it's been it's been a, a good rejuvenation for my career, just taking on the challenge and uh, trying to move forward in the next step of, you know, uh, what the industry has to offer for me, you know? Yeah, like you said, I mean, you've been in the sport for the better part of almost two full decades at this point. You, you're no stranger to, to running up front, leading teams and winning races. But what specifically about this opportunity made it the right place at the right time to take this step? Yeah, I mean, it really just comes back to what we got here at Front Row. Um, obviously, um, last year kind of came over here with Blake and worked on the 34, still in that car chief role I was in. And, um, you know, it brings me back to my furniture row days um, when you have a little bit of a smaller team. Um, and just the camaraderie, the kind of core group of people you have here. Um, you know, they're all people of my blend, I would say. Um, you know, we're maybe not the cleanest, most prettiest guys in the garage, but we're racers and and we know what we're here to try and accomplish. And so uh, kind of, you know, when the off season came, I just owed it to, you know, the team, myself and my family to be patient about what we wanted to do. And, um, you know, Bob and Jerry kind of offered me to, you know, crew chief the 38 here. And so um, it, it, I don't want to say it was an easy decision. Um, but again, when you go back to the people we have here and, and the people they had established on a 38, uh, again, there's some, there's some grassroots racers and, and that's important to me from where I come from. And um, I, I think with, you know, the direction Bob and Jerry are wanting to go with the company and, and the teams and everything and who we've, you know, we brought on board. It's, it's, uh, it's a place I feel, uh, you know, home at, and uh, hopefully it's something we can keep working and building on into the future here. So what was it like when Bob, Jerry, whoever it was, Seth gave you that phone call or sat you down in that meeting and, and said, all right, Ryan, here are the keys to the, to the proverbial car here, my friend, you're the leader. Yeah. The crew chief. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was a little honestly weird. If you followed the off season for me, it, it was, they kind of offered me a role to stay within the company, but on a different, um, a different level than crew chief. It was more like a, a competition performance manager. 
uh, where I was going to kind of oversee production of both cars and everything and uh, was really looking forward to it. And and I was kind of in the the mix of establishing, you know, uh, a couple personnel uh, spots that were now vacant because of Blake and I leaving a 34, um, you know, with Travis and, and a couple other guys we brought in. Um, and I one day just joked at Jerry and I said, I said, Jerry, we're at this point, cause we were kind of, I don't want to say struggling to find a person. We were struggling to find the right fit, um, for the 38. And, and we were really targeting somebody that had a car background, um, because we brought Travis in on a 34 and he's, uh, engineer background, super smart guy and analytical and just a, a really good dynamic to that half of it. But we knew to advance our our company, we need to find a car guy and someone that meshed well and we can get the both teams, you know, close. Um, and I kind of joked to Jerry and I said, Jerry, Jerry, at this point, I'm going to have to crew chief 38. And it was kind of like a joke. Right. And a couple of days later, he calls me up to the office and he goes, so uh, are you serious about doing a 38? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you, you, a couple of days ago, you mentioned, I'm like, I mean, at this point, I'm like, well, you know, what do we think? And and so we had a conversation, a good one. And it, and it wasn't centered around me or anybody. It was just really, centered around what's going to be best for this company um, in the race team and moving forward. And um, at the end of the day, I think with what candidates maybe were available to fill the seat and myself, I think uh, I felt pretty confident and just um, saying that I feel good. I can work good with Travis and the 34 group and and we can put our best foot forward into just, you know, making front row better in general. So it legitimately kind of started as a joke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the exact same way. Uh, you know, because at the end of 19, I quit racing and we moved back to Connecticut for a couple of years. And so I kind of was back home racing modifies with buddies. And Blake, when he took the job crew chief for Michael last year, he called me and I'm like, heck, it's January. Why is he? I must have not have paid a bill with, you know, some shock stuff he was doing for me. And um, it was a joke for him. He's like, hey, I need you to go racing. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I, I need you to go racing again. And so that like that started as a joke. And I'm like, well, the timing's right for us to have this conversation. And so, um, you know, at the time we were just, I was, heck, I was working more on modifieds than I do now and, and coming home late at night and going to staff on Fridays. So um, that started as a joke too. So the last two years have kind of started off of, uh, yeah, a little bit of a joke, but here we are. So I guess that goes to show you never know what you put out there into the ether, if it actually might come true. <laughs> for sure. So that's interesting. I didn't know that you you moved back home to Connecticut after 2019. You know, you mentioned Furniture Row. That's kind of where you and Blake got hooked up. He was the yep. car chief over there on the 78 with Martin and Barney for a long time. Um, after Furniture Row shuttered its doors, was that it for you at that moment? Did you move home after that occurred? No, um, I was at I was at Furniture Row from middle of 09 to like 13. So in, in 13. Okay. Yeah, and 13 kind of when a lot of stuff was turned around and Pete Rundu and, um, you know, and then Cole came into the mix and Cole was out and came back. There was a lot of stuff turned around. Um, I had an opportunity to go car chief the one car at Ganassi. So, that's right. Um, yeah, so 2013, I basically relocated back and then I car chief at Ganassi on the one car um, until the end of 19. So, went through the Jamie and Kerr era um, over there and, and had some really good air, um, time there. And, um, it was it was good and then just the end of 19 my wife and i we had our first daughter and so um we said let's take a break let's just do two years and you know what's what do we want to do for two years and um you know i got some some of my grandparents stuff at the uh, not doing so hot so we just said hey let's move to connecticut let's let's 
spend some time with family. Let's go racing modifies the guys back home where I grew up and, uh, in two years, we'll discuss what we want to do. And, um, so on a Monday we discussed what we want to do. And on Wednesday, Blake called me, you know, just running a joke by me. And so in the last year and a half now have been a good transition to what we call back home here in Charlotte. Got it. Okay. That, that makes sense. Timeline wise. Cause I knew that it was furniture road, then Ganassi. So that timing lines up there. You mentioned you were the car chief on the one car for those handful of years. And I know that the role of car chief has kind of just like any other role on the engineering side or the, the technical side of the sport, it's evolved over the years. I'm sure. Right. In your time in that role, specifically with Ganassi on the one car and even going back to Furniture Row, how did you see that role of car chief evolve? Because I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in the last decade or so maybe, that specific role and the person that plays it has become a lot more integral into the success of the race team. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm biased one way or another uh, when it comes to the role of a car chief. I think at the end of the day, it's it's uh, understanding just what it takes as a, as a team. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, for 15, 17 years kind of doing this as a car chief, you, you, uh, I was always in an industry where you had to be an engineer. You had to be an engineer to be a crew chief. And it just was pounded into you to, to have to do that. And, um, you know, I don't, I can't say that I never thought I'd have an opportunity to crew chief. Um, but you know, you just, you prepare, you learn and, and, I mean, my main focus for a long time has been on the people. Uh, I mean, I come from a family that owns blue collar businesses. And at the end of the day, you just taught to wake up uh, before everybody else, keep your hands out of your pockets and show up on time and give an honest day's work. Um, people and tools are the most important uh, thing in any business. And and um, so whether it was car chief or now kind of moving up a little bit here, it's it's just about taking care of people, treating them right and and wanting to see them succeed as much as myself or the team and and if the whole group succeeds and the individuals are succeeding in, in itself so um you know i just you know i kind of just you know you just i don't know you just the car chief's important um he's in the middle of a lot but um they all have their strengths and weaknesses and you just um you just gotta adapt it to the team and figure out the morale the core functions of your team and how it's structured. And once you have that, it's just a matter of making it all work. Well, it seems like you're bringing out the best in uh, your driver for the majority of the season, Todd Gillen. As you know, I had him on the show uh, about a month and a half or so ago. And at yeah. that point, it had been 13 races, I think, into the year. Already a career high in top 10s for him. And I know it's, this is only his second year in Cup, but already surpassed that mark. So I asked him what had been different so far, and he kind of gave one of those answers of, well, yes, it's a combination of a new crew chief, my second year in cup, more information, more comfortable with the next gen, et cetera, et cetera. But given that you have been at front row since Todd has gotten there into the cup series, what have you seen in him to make him have an uptick in performance? And it's okay to say yourself, you're allowed to brag on yourself a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, um, Todd, Todd's just the whole package. And I think, uh, you know, a part of what I've done is I come from, I'm a tough, no short track racer, man. Like you just, you're not really interested in sucking at the end of the day. So you have to, you just gotta know your expectations and push yourself. And, and really, I think the, the biggest influence I've had on Todd is just some confidence, right? Like, I mean, Todd's, he's got charisma, he's got character. He he's, 
He's likable. He's a hell of a wheelman. And, and just uplifting him down that path, like I think um, he's got a huge career in the industry, you can say. And just getting him to believe in that, right? And, and, and you know, it's a, it's a weird dynamic for some younger drivers that have had a father – uh, that's been successful, right? Because like anything, right? You're always maybe trying to live up to something or whatever, and it's tough to create your own path. And so I've just really kind of encouraged him to, you know, be him, race how he wants to race and and, and execute and carry himself like he wants to. And, and at the end of the day, he's, he's got the package. He's got the skill sets and and, and and the character and stuff to um, to market himself in the industry. And, and um, so it's, you know, a little bit of the confidence, but at the same time, um, I'm a very, you know, you got with me kind of guy. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm not afraid to put it on a table with him and tell him when he's sucking or when he's doing good. And, and um, we don't really beat around the bush. We know what we're trying to accomplish. And um, I think the dynamic of my personality, where he's at as a driver, he respects me, I respect him. And, and we just keep pushing each other. Um, and that kind of dynamic is, I felt like just kind of worked its way through the team a little bit because, um, there's not much change as far as the whole team goes. Um, really, it's myself and one of our other engineers. Um, but you just we all can we can all do it at this level. It's just a matter of believing and encouraging, and then setting a standard for how we're going to get there. How much more comfortable do you personally feel in your role as as a crew chief of the 38 team right now, after the first and only off week of the year, than you did leading into Daytona or coming out of Daytona? Cause I feel like you've gone through a world of experience just in several months. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Right. Like it's, I'm not going to lie going to Daytona. You're, I don't want to say you're nervous. It's just the unknowns. It's, you know, you, when you car chief, you're next to your crew chief for, for so many parts of his day, you think, you know, everything, but until you go through the motions, it's, uh, um, it's for sure the unknown is there. Uh, and then for me, I just, I mean, I kind of have that, like, I mean, what's the worst they're going to do? They can't take my birthday kind of attitude, right? Like I'm a racer. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to bust my ass and um, we're going to expect to get better every week and compete. Um, and, and I'm just true to myself. You know, I don't, I don't try to really be something I'm not. I don't try to act like somebody I'm not. And in the end of the day, I think that um, that's gotten to me, have the opportunity where I'm at uh, and I'm just going to stick to my core roots and um, keep pushing forward. I think for sure where we're at now, I think it's a little more fluent for me. Um, but as it gets more fluent, I expect more and and I expect more out of myself before anybody else. And um, I need to find a way to figure out how to get more consistent. Um, you know, we've had some good little stints throughout the year, but our consistency has been hor horrific. And we just, I need, I need to figure out, you know, how we miss a couple weekends, whether it was, you know, last weekend in Sonoma or, you know, uh, we just, we've had a couple off weeks and it's kind of unacceptable on my part from my end. So I just need to go to work on figuring, figuring out consistency. I'm sure that one of those guys within the building that you lean on for advice and he probably does the same to you is Travis. We're talking about Travis Peterson, crew chief for McDowell in the 34. I'm sure Chris Lawson probably is involved with that process as well. What's the relationship and communication between you three throughout the week and specifically as it pertains to Travis, given that he's working on the same car day in, day out, week in, week out as you are? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a kind of a question that comes up from the day one when we kind of just structured how we are. Um, you know, Travis is, uh, he's super intelligent. Like he's, his uh, race craft, uh, his savviness, attention to details and all that is, is um, it's super, it's stellar. 
Um, and, and I've seen that in him. Um, and that's on kind of an engineering side, right? And, and I feel when it comes to uh, the functioning kind of basics of ground floor stuff and building a car and hands on, uh, I fear, feel I'm comparable to his skill sets and stuff on the engineering side. And so we've just really opened our book to one another um, when we have ideas or we need an understanding and just executing. And, and um, it's really cool to see what 34 has been doing this year. It's Michael's put the effort in and, and they've continued to have great success. Um, it's a, it's a fresh little healthy internal competition. Um, cause I don't like to see them outrun us, but at the same time, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a healthy way of pushing our company forward. Uh, Travis and I understand that. And it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to work next to him every day. And, um, just, he, he helps me grow and I hope I, uh, I'm helping him grow in his, his, his new role as well. Well, speaking of working next to him. You quite literally do that now, considering that you are the one that cut down the wall in the race shop between the 38 and the 34. Yeah. When I heard this story for the first time, I was laughing out loud. Todd told me the backstory as well. But I want to hear it from you, the man who had the Sawzall in his hand and actually literally cut down the wall. Why'd you do it? How'd you do it? When'd you do it? And what have the results been of making that wall literally not exist anymore? Uh, <laughs> this is a great topic. I wish I'd known this was going to be such a good talking point when I did it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just last year that there's two offices up here and they're kind of, they're, they're just aside from one another, but they're separated by a wall. And in last year, you know, we just, I don't want to say we had disconnect. It's just the communication lines were a little tougher. Um, and when I was in that little stint of a different role before crew chief in the 38, I had a, um, I said, we, we need to make this one big office. Like that's how we're going to clean things up here as far as communicating and just understanding one another. And um, I was kind of up here by myself and I grew up in a construction family where I'm a, I'm a Bob Vila guy myself. Right. And so I said, we just need to cut this dang wall down. And, and uh, one engineer said, what? I says like, cut it down. Like just take us all all. We're going to mark it out and we're going to cut it down. And he's like, well, so I had taken some, uh, some masking tape and measured it out, measured out where the studs were. And I sent a text message to, to Jerry upstairs and um, I forget who was up there with him, but I basically sent a picture and says uh, one team, one goal, you know, it was a, a Ganassi thing we had. And I just says, we need to get rid of this wall. Tell me when I can hit go and I'll, it'll go. And I think he like slightly thought I was joking. And as soon as he said, go, I walked downstairs, got a sawzall, popped a hole in the wall and just sawed it out. And he came upstairs, like, I don't know, 45 minutes later. He's like, what in the world? And I said, you told me go. And so um, it just, I think that just started, started the, I don't know, the culture change a little bit of what we had. And yeah, um, yeah it's been a good talking point for sure. It all goes back to the jokes. It's all trim. It's, it's all trimmed out and it looks, it looks really pretty now. Like it's, we talked about we talk about putting Christmas lights around it and like you know, the opening in the wall has been a cultivating thing here. Yeah. Now the next step is you got to make it, you got to make it like a, um, a talking point when people come for shop visits or something like that. You yeah. Like this is the wall where yeah. that Ryan <laughs> literally tore down. So yeah, but, I mean, sure. to your point, you didn't think it was going to become a talking point. I mean, just from talking to you for the last several minutes here, I can tell you're just kind of a, a no BS guy who, who's just a racer's racer through and through. And that kind of comes from your background, obviously, in the Northeast. You mentioned you moved back home to Connecticut. 
you've been a modified guy your whole life. You've raced them. You've worked on them. Uh, take me back to your background when you were a kid growing up in racing and when your passion kind of first started and, and this whole infatuation with motorsports first really blossomed for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a native of Plainville, Connecticut, which is centrally located. Uh, you know, there's Plainville Stadium. I think it was torn down in mid 80s. I was only a couple years old, but my Uncle John raced there. Uh, and then my family kind of grew up, you know, my father was best friends with Michael and Teddy Christopher. And so uh, I always call him Uncle Mike, Uncle Ted. And so just growing up around them um, over the years, uh, if you get to know them at all or familiar with, with them, it was uh, racing seven days a week. And heck, I used to go over Uncle Teddy's house and we'd uh, work on the race cars. And I think once a month or so, I'd go to the house and spend the night at the condo and we'd make spice cake together and he'd take me to school the next day. And um, so you just, you're, when you're exposed to it like that and, you know, you're going down the new Smyrna when you're 13 or 14 years old, cause you can get in the pits down there and in Stafford, I couldn't like yeah. all that stuff just kind of, you know, when I was younger, you go through the motions of playing sports and, and, you know, sticking ball sports and, and all that and started racing go-karts. And, you know, my old man basically just said like, you have an option here. Like you're going to go have baseball practice on a Friday night. You're going to come to the racetrack with me. Like, what do you want to do? And um, I mean, it's just, is in my jeans there and um Stafford it was so between Stafford and Loudon and just anywhere you can go and uh I got into running some micro sprint stuff before I moved down here and was doing it myself and um just basically said like I'm I'm not going to ever look back and say I didn't try to go work on race cars for a living and so I think when I left Connecticut I had 700 bucks no job nowhere to live and just I guess a little bit of ambition and I'll never forget. It was like somewhere I was in Virginia and the lady from the, um, the apartment complex called me and says, yeah, you're, you're approved. I'm like, well, that's good. Cause I'll be there in six hours. I need a place to live, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then your first couple of jobs, you just, you, I mean, I was donating time, um, for a couple of weeks and then it all just kind of took off from there. But, um, you know, going home 19 and 20 and, uh, getting back to race with my buddies and, you know, Michael, Michael Jr.'s race and a lot of staff for it. And just, seeing all my friends and racing and realizing that they work just as hard as I do down here. Um, you spend a lot of time and, and it was really cool. It's, it's my roots. So I stick to, and, um, you know, I look forward to uh, following them on Friday nights and, and what all my buddies are still doing for sure. Is there some party of deep down that whenever Todd's doing something that you may not like or whatever, you're like, man, I can get in there and show him a thing or two. I think I can show him what it's like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I mean, I kind of, I, I don't want to say that. Last year we had a, Michael and I had a thing where he, he uh, we'd get on iRacing and and he, we would get on there and cut laps. And I'm the kind of guy where it was like, I refused to sign off until I had a faster lap than McDowell. <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I mean, I felt most of the time I could get him. <laughs> you know, it's a video game. It's not reality. He's probably got me into reality covered, but um you know, I don't, I don't think so. It's just, um, for me, just growing up around racing so much and the, you know, the little experience I have driving is I think I have just a good understanding in the, in the book, right? Like you just, you understand when he starts speaking, um, and I can kind of look at some, you know, SMT data and stuff. And I think I have a pretty good understanding of what he's feeling. Um, and, and that's the biggest thing for me, I think that I can relate to is just understanding like when he explains something that I understand, you know, I, I know where he's going with it and what he needs the car to be better. So, um, I don't know, maybe one, 
we, we, we've been uh, working on building a iRacing rig here ourselves. We got some water jetted parts and we, I ordered a bunch of stuff. We got a pile of stuff laying over here. So um, we'll have an iRacing rig set up here soon. We'll, we'll, we'll have a leaderboard for sure. Check in when we get the leaderboard back up. <laughs> I will. It, but, but if, if you're racing on a road course, my money's probably on Michael. Yeah. He's one of the best. I yeah. don't disagree. He's, he's for <laughs> sure good. And man, he's just, he's, you know, he, he's really, really good on road courses, but I think, I think what he's done on mile and a half and even what he's done on his short track stuff is um, he deserves a lot more credit. I think than he's got over the last couple oh, of years. And, and he's um, he's one of the best things we have going for us here at front row because he's his um, willingness to work. His intensity is I'm telling you, it's up there with a lot of the other guys and it's, it's pushed myself. It's pushed his crew chief Travis. It's, it's pushed all of us. And so again, I go back a little bit with um, the internal healthy competition um we sit here and bust each other's you know what's a little bit but it at the end of the day we all we all are competing to be the best and we just we have a, a healthy relationship of being the best um so it's it's a cool dynamic of what we have here and what everyone's doing it sounds like it for sure healthy internal competition is not a bad thing at all i got a couple more things i want to hit with you but i want to be conscious yeah. of your time no, you're um, good. the the 38 car, obviously, it's been an interesting storyline to follow this year because before the season, we get the news that Zane's going to be running a couple times. Todd was kind of blindsided by the news. As a crew chief, and again, the leader of this race team, you are the leader. You have to manage this situation. How have you and how do you go about managing a situation where, let's be honest, there are feelings and have been feelings that were hurt, but both drivers are professionals. They put those to the side when they need to, and they do the job at hand when it needs to be done you as the leader how do you go about handling a situation like that uh yeah i mean it's um it's just been something i've taken as it's kind of hit me um you know you would think you can kind of look back at some like all-star cars like gibbs does an all-star xfinity program and changing drivers and i've kind of looked back at historically like i'm super analytical and so you look back at like what data points do you have of a certain situation like this and how do you maximize what you're doing? And, um, you know, it's, it's just, there's not really another one out there. I think that's really stood out to me that the, the Gibbs Xfinity program is, I don't think you can relate to that just because their program's so good. And in the Xfinity series, I mean, the competition's a little different for sure. Um, but at the cup level, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been challenging. I thought at the beginning of the year that, it's, this is not going to be too bad because Todd had a super positive outlook um, with just the opportunity he has to run 30 races and, you know, Zane coming in for six and there was a lot of energy. Um, but at the end of the day, man, it's, I'll be honest, it's, it's super hard and it's, it's we're going to, we're going to build best, the best race car we can every week, no matter what. But um, the hard part is just, it's like the ball's rolling downhill, kind of tumbling your, your momentum thing. And um, I mean, we had five or six races in a row where we were, what Todd, maybe a 12 or 13th place finish somewhere in there, um, which was like a stellar little momentum uh, stint we had. And, and then you put Zane in the car and it's like, it's not a big deal. It's a speedway race, but we get wrecked and, and um, you know, just deflates, deflates the balloon you've been pumping up. So um, the, the drivers have had a good outlook with it and, and we're for sure still putting our best foot forward. And, and I still have high hopes on what we can produce the rest of the season um, but it's a, it's a different dynamic, but again, I think with everybody understanding, um, I try to shelter a lot of that stress part of it 
to myself rather than the group. And, um, you know, we're just gonna keep pushing forward and building good race cars at the end of the day. And, um, we got a long stint here with Todd, um, you know, coming up and, uh, I think he's in until the fall and, and I like to see him have a couple good weeks here and have a, you know, good summer stretch with a couple good tracks coming up for him. So, um, we're just bobbing and weaving. And, uh, like I said, you build the best race cars you can and move forward. It seems like you're comfortable in the leadership role as a crew chief. Is that fair to say? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, I'll, I'll, I'll feel more comfortable when we're winning races, you know, that's, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't judge myself off of how, uh, uh, how I look, I judge myself off results and it's a results driven industry. So, um, I'll feel a little more, a little more comfortable once we, uh, start contending for top tens, top fives, and hopefully someone's here soon. So we've talked about lion mode. We've mentioned it at least. Todd was referring to it a little bit ago. Let's hear it from you. Lion mode, explain it. Where did it come from? What's the genesis of it? Because you are the creator. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't want to say I'm the creator of it, that there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of motivational podcasts and there's a lot of people out there that have a really good story. And, um, you know, every, everybody's got a story of, you know, where they come from, uh, what's inspired them. And, um, you know, my best friend from high school, we have, uh, I want to say the most unhealthy, but healthy relationship because, you know, as kids, it was, you know, uh, the, the willingness to accept being defeated was not there. And so we used to fight fist fight, throw controllers at walls and, and it, it just it hinged on a, and losing. And, um, so it was, um, you know, he, he's got a younger boy now that he's getting back into wrestling and stuff. What he did when he was younger. And, uh, it just, it was one night I was laying in bed and he sent me a video of, of the lion mode stuff. And it, it kind of, it just, it hit me in a good spot. It's a, it was a good, a good time for, me to kind of introduce and and introduce that to the to the team here um and so you know i just kind of we talk about it a little bit and and here at front row we don't i'm not gonna say we don't have the resources but at the end of the day we're a small group and we uh we need to know what we're working with and um the whole lion mode thing is you know you go back and you watch some of these motivational speeches and people that look into that concept and what it comes down to is the lion's not it's not the biggest, baddest, smartest like thing in the jungle, right? It's just a matter of uh, um, it just puts it all together to, um, you know, refuse to lose, right? And so um, it's been good, and we've been pushing hard with it. And, uh, you know, you just – Lions always win, right? So that's what we're going to do. That's right, unless you're in Detroit, but, you know. Hey, I got a good buddy that's a Lions fan, and it's uh, – <laughs> Trust me, our text messages, we uh, we burn it down. I give him a lot of junk. I went to school at, at uh, Michigan State for four years. I got a bunch of buddies that are Lions fans, so I, I know it full well. The suffering is real. I get it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's going to turn around, though, right? It's like racing. It's always full yeah. circle. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. The Just like you said, you know, the Lion is uh, It's not necessarily the primitive creature in the jungle. The NASCAR garage is like a jungle but it puts everything together. And it seems yep. like you guys are doing a real good job of that, not just at the 38 group, but at Front Row Motorsports in general. All right, a couple quick housekeeping items. A uh, quick racing reference researching shows that this year when you crew chief Todd in Daytona, it was actually not your first time crew chiefing. 
Dexter Bean, 2009. I need the backstory because I, I ain't got one. So that was a little tiny stint between uh, the smorgasbord of kind of jobs I had prior to Furniture Row. Um, I worked with Dexter on a, on a Glock car um, in Arca. And his old man kind of bought a couple uh, cars, cup cars, and um, he he approached me and basically said, Dexter's not going to run the you know the Glock car for Spraker Racing anymore, and we're going to buy these cup cars, and we're going to keep them in Wisconsin. And I kind of was like, okay, you know. And so the, the long story short is um, I ended up moving to Wisconsin for seven, eight months and kind of prepped those cars during 09 before I went to Furniture Row. And um, there was a number of scenarios that could have worked out as far as who's going to do what, but they just, I don't know, decided they needed me up there to prep the cars. And um, <laughs> there was a couple races that popped up and, um, you know, at the time I, I'd like to think I was ready, but I really wasn't. And, you know, his, his old man kind of asked me, Hey, we're going to, we want to go to Pocono. And I'm like, okay, well, like I'll prep the cars, but who's going to crew it? Who's going to car chief it? Who's going to like everything. And um, he goes, you. And I, so I just, you know, just continue to put your best foot forward with the job that's available. And um, so we did. So we went to Pocono and that was um, a cool experience, but um, it didn't last too long. You know, they kind of just fizzled out and um, it's a tough industry to go cup race and you need to have yeah. a lot on your side. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunity of what, you know, they put forward from their side. It definitely was a, a step in my career to at least get me uh, down the right path for opportunity. We mentioned Furniture Row a couple of times. I haven't asked this yet, and I apologize because I wanted to, but I assume you are living out in Denver, correct? Yes, sir. How? Well, it seems like the experience of working for that team out in Denver, you know, on the surface, it's like, oh, wow, you got to live all the way out there. But everybody that I've talked to and heard from that actually worked for the team says that it was one of the most enjoyable racing experiences they have ever had. What was your experience like working out there in Colorado and just racing kind of on a silo compared to everybody here in Charlotte? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, the, the biggest takeaway from me out there is not necessarily just the race team. I mean, we kind of live in a silo here. I, I work at front row. I make the commute here every day and come through the same doors, uh, you know, to build race cars every day. And there's other teams that are close, but if they were 500 or a thousand miles away, it's, it, it, it's kind of irrelevant to me. Um, the takeaway from out there that's really helped me, I think, in my career is, um, you know, this the character that Barney was, right? Like the everything rolls downhill. And so Barney was the kind of guy that just took care of his people. Um, it didn't matter where you were in his kind of food chart as far as an employee. Um, he treated everybody the same. Um, he, and he just it starts with him, how he created a culture and what he did for the people. Um, and, and it people wanted to go there. And so, um, you know, it was a good a good uh, little, you know, kind of four year stint in my career. But the, the biggest takeaway is the race team's a race team, man. You're just you're building race cars and your 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 commute there was a little bit further to the racetrack, but you you worked around it. We had really good people out there. It was a smaller team like we have here at Front Row. Um, the camaraderie was, you know, real similar, like I was saying here to what we have at Front Row. And um, but it, it just what the biggest takeaway I have is, is Barney himself and, and his wife, Caroline, and just their family and how they operated um, and how they cared about their people. And, and um, at the end result was it gave them, uh, they reaped rewards from who they were. So as we said, the first and only off weekend is now in the rear view. And we got Nashville looking at the windshield. We are going to be back and 
for 20 straight weeks, going to be ripping and gripping to the end of the year. Can you give us a preview of what we should expect on the concrete mile plus track this weekend out in the Music City? Yeah, no, I mean, going to going to Nashville, we're looking forward to it. You know, we got Serial One back on the car. They've been a great supporter of Todd's and Front Row and uh, Mr. Ruder Bush. They've been super helpful for, you know, uh, for the company and for Todd. And um, so we're looking forward to having good results for them. Um, you know, but I think at the end of the day, it's just, uh, it's another kind of intermediate style track. It's a little bit of a hybrid, throws you a couple of little different curveballs. Um, but I think the direction, you know, I just was in there talking to Travis about kind of direction we're going to go with cars and we have a practice this weekend. So it's a little bit of a different schedule for us, but, um, you know, we're, we're, I think we're poised to keep bringing better cars to the track, but, you know, kind of, like I said, a little while ago, it's, um, it's consistency. You know, I think we've been going down a path of how we develop our setups um, and it's just not been consistent. So we need to clean that up. And, and that's stuff that, you know, the engineers and Travis and the teams and I all talk about. And uh, I'm looking forward to Nashville. And, and I think, again, Todd and, and um, everybody here at Front Row is uh, is pushing real hard to getting better and um, hopefully good results. Have you gotten able to have, have you been able to take the rookie stripe off of Travis's truck in the parking lot yet? Have you seen that? <laughs> I did. Yeah. yeah I'm going to, I'm going to keep wearing them out. That's, I mean, we have a lot of fun here. So he's uh, again, he's doing a good job and he's pushing me to be, I think better at, at what I do. And, but at the same time, you know, the uh, picking on each other a little bit, it's you, you, if you're ever have an opportunity to work with me, we're going to have fun and we're going to be passionate about what we do, but we're going to bust each other's chops and, um, he pulled them off himself. So I don't know what's next <laughs> up for him, but I'm, I'm going to get him with something good for sure. I'm sure he's going to find out. I, I have no doubt about that. Well, uh, I appreciate your time, Ryan. It's been great to get to know you a little bit better, catch up with you. You guys have yeah. had awesome success so far in 2023, and I know that the next 20 weeks, it's going to be long, it's going to be arduous, but I got no doubt you guys will be uh, having more success down the road. So looking forward to chatting soon, and best of luck this weekend in Nashville, my friend. Yes, sir. I appreciate you having me on. And we are back. Whew. Thank you to Ryan for the time. I, I, I thanked him after for going a little bit long. And he said, oh, it's fine. I like doing it. I got nothing else to do. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> I feel like you probably have some stuff to do heading into uh, Nashville Super Speedway this weekend. But for real, thank you to Ryan. Thank you to Alex Minton of Front Row Motorsports for helping coordinate that conversation. Much appreciated to both of you gentlemen. And like I told Ryan, I'm sure we will be chatting soon because Odds are the 38's going to be running up front a whole lot more for these last 20 races of the year. Nothing to recap from this past week that it was the first and only off weekend of the year. I thoroughly enjoyed it, by the way. I uh, I was missing my NASCAR, but I got some motorsports fill, had some IndyCar, Road America, Formula One, and Montreal, and uh, obviously had some other racing series here and there. ASA was at Milwaukee. And there was always racing on. No matter where you look, you can find it somewhere. It might just not be a series that you know about and that you follow, but there's always racing going on wherever, whenever, 24-7, 365. But with that being said, NASCAR does return to the schedule this weekend. Going to do so down in the Music City, Nashville Super Speedway, on the concrete jungle of sorts down there in Lebanon, Tennessee. Interested to see how this one plays out. It's it's pretty much an intermediate track with concrete on top of it. So we'll see if Hendrick is going to come to play, if Gibbs is going to come to play. Will Ford show their stuff? Last intermediate that we were on, B 
being at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the 600. Ford was pretty strong with Ryan Blaney winning that 600 miler. So I really don't know what to expect. I expect that the big teams will be good, obviously, but I don't know which big team will be the best. And that is why we will all watch and find out together. Night race this year, though. It's going to be going green at around 7 p.m. Eastern time. That's sixth local time if you're going to be at the racetrack out there in Tennessee. NBC will have the coverage, as will the Performance Racing Network and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, Channel 90. And that will wrap things up for today's episode 190 of Victory Lane 2.0. Thank you so much again to Mr. Ryan Bergenti of Front Row Motorsports for giving us so much of his time. If you like what you heard here today from him, please let him know and let me know. You can do so on Twitter at Davy Center. He is at Ryan Bergenti on Twitter as well for team underscore FRN. That's Front Row Motorsports. And also, if you haven't already done so, it really helps me out if you leave a rating and a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts. We are available wherever you get your pods, any podcast platform of choice. And if we are not, please drop me a line. I will try to rectify that issue for you. Call me, text me, beat me. You know where to reach me. And I so, so appreciate your guys' feedback. I so appreciate your guys' loyalty. I so appreciate your guys' listenership every single weekend. Landon Lewis last week, Ryan Bergenzi this week. Who will we have next week for episode 191? The world may never know. That's why you got to hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button, and you'll find out just like everybody else when the episode drops around this time next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will chat with you next time right here, the place that everybody wants to be. You already know what it is, Victory Lane. Talk to you next time, party people.